0: Welcome back to the Gentle Counselor Podcast. My name is Crystal, and I provide online resources to support the mental health and well-being of parents and children. For those of you listening to this episode right now, this episode is going to be a little bit different to what is typically on the Gentle Counselor Podcast, and that is because back in October, we had World Mental Health Day, and I had some lovely friends come together, as guest speakers in a private group called the Aussie Mums Mental Health Virtual Event. So the format of the episodes are going to be a little bit different, but you're going to hear back the replay of my interview with the amazing speakers on a variety of topics. So stay tuned for these episodes because they're packed full of goodness. that tongue ties exist i know they're a thing um i have basic understanding of how they can uh bring difficulties and like feeding and also for adults uh but the reason why we're all here is because debbie is making it her life's mission basically to get all the information and so if you're not familiar with debbie she is a breastfeeding and tongue tie doula um, and she supports mom in overcoming breastfeeding difficulties and yeah so Let's just start off by you telling us about tongue ties and some of the common, the common challenges that you see, because um, we know there's short and long-term ones that can happen when it comes to ties.
1: So tongue ties are a congenital abnormality. Everybody has a frenulum under their tongue, and the frenulum forms as part of our development in utero. In the early stages of development, the frenulum actually extends all the way the tip of the tongue and it's some sort of um I don't know protective mechanism um well sorry I'm getting ahead of myself there when the baby's in the early stages of development the the tongue is restricted all the way to the tip and then towards the end of the first trimester as part of apoptosis which is programmed cell death which happens throughout our lives but in this particular stage of apoptosis the cells, the excess cells of the frenulum are meant to completely die off and disappear, such that the tongue still has a frenulum, but the frenulum goes, "I can't I'm not coordinated under the tongue <laughs> and then in the mouth, but without um, restricting the range of movement of the tongue. So when that process fails or partly fails, that's when we're left with a restriction in the tongue. so, this is really a genetic issue that we're dealing with, you know, three or four generations down the line of what probably happened to trigger the DNA changes and the genetic, you know, whatever it is that's pushing us down the line. What that means is that there's like six months of the baby's life in utero where their tongue is not sitting in the correct position in their mouth and they're not using it correctly. So we know that the fetus Um, drinks and swallows the amniotic fluid and we know that the tongue should sit up in the roof of the mouth in the in the top of the palate because the tongue is what shapes the palate it's really the like muscle trumps bone it's the tongue that um is the kind of the scaffold that the whole oral cavity is built around and it only takes i think it's three and a half grams of weight to move the teeth around so when you've got like a child that's got a tongue thrust when they swallow that's how they end up with the teeth being pushed forwards because Mm -hmm. you swallow there's varying estimates on how many times you swallow a day but however many times you swallow per day each time you're pushing the tongue forward and that's slowly gradually pushing the teeth forward so going back to in utero we've got a baby that ends up with Um, a low tongue position, an incorrect method of swallowing, and generally a high narrow palate, also called a bubble palate. And then the baby's born, and we try and breastfeed the baby. And lots of difficulties ensue with that. Firstly, most medical professionals are not trained in how to look for ties and how to properly assess for oral restrictions. Most medical professionals will unfortunately dismiss the impact of tongue tie on breastfeeding simply because they don't have that knowledge. Um, I know of a couple of lactation consultants that went to do a course on ties and they were absolutely horrified in what they learned in that they realized how many of the issues their mums were having, their clients were having that you know, in, in however many years they'd been in practice that were related to ties and they just didn't know about it because they hadn't they didn't have that knowledge they hadn't gone and sought out yeah that training
0: and we were talking about this yesterday as well is that you have to actually seek out the additional study for this and that's what's so frustrating when you're working with mothers in this space because they go to a gp first most of the time and they don't have training on breastfeeding let alone ties and all these other things and so then you just get a bunch of families that are being dismissed and either told to tough it out or to ignore their instincts of knowing something's not right. And there are such detrimental consequences to this, especially if you're someone that's really wanting to have breastfeeding as a goal.
1: Well, we, we get really screwed over by the maternity care system, and I'm sure Jamie will speak on that. Um, and so we often come out of you know, um, quite often mums are coming out of traumatic birth experiences where the birth didn't go the way that they planned it or they had um, <clears throat> interventions that ended up separating them from the baby and they didn't get to have that first skin to skin and the first hour together and those sorts of things. So, often we're coming into breastfeeding already on the back foot because we're trying to overcome the, the birth trauma and the, and the birth issues and then like the, the the breastfeeding starts, like, you know, then you don't get to put it on hold and, and recover for a week or two and, and then sort of, you can pick it up. But it's really an instant sort of thing where you, you're still dealing with all of the birth and then you've got to immediately launch into this breastfeeding issue. And then, as I said, most of the medical professionals, your um, midwives, your nurses, your pediatricians, your GPs, your child health nurse, And even a lot of lactation consultants don't have specific training in this area. So you get breastfeeding advice from a lot of the time people who don't even have breastfeeding training. And so you're already on the back foot from your birth. Now you're getting breastfeeding advice from people who don't have any qualifications in breastfeeding. And then if your baby has a tongue tie, it's really commonly missed dismissed like oh your baby has a mild tongue tie but it's not causing the breastfeeding problems you're experiencing. Mild or, tongue tie. <laughs> mild tongue tie I hate that term or <laughs> it's mismanaged so sometimes um, a doctor will say oh yeah your baby has a lip tie and let's go and snip the lip tie and that will solve all of your breastfeeding problems except it really doesn't. So the vast majority of mums and I mean thankfully with social media and awareness growing and and as you said, this is my life's work in trying to spread awareness about this, the situation has improved in the last five to seven years. Mm -hmm. But one of the reasons I'm so passionate about this, and it links very much into into the mental health theme of today, is by not supporting mums properly, by not having really good breastfeeding support, by not recognizing tongue ties, by not, you know, if if mum... Is struggling to feed and we don't get her on a feeding plan early enough and we don't assess for the ties and we don't get her off to see an osteopath and get the ties released by a good provider. And you know, if we if we don't get all of those things right, we're really stealing postpartum from mothers. Like that first year after their baby is born, whether it's your first baby or your fifth baby, that first year is so critical in building your relationship with that baby in rebuilding yourself as a mother in um establishing the connection and you like really we should be able to like we were in the in the village and the tribe sit back and relax and have all the things done for us and just have the time to sit and bond with that baby and the majority of the time we don't have that and then we also have so much stress that comes out of having breastfeeding difficulties. Now, people will talk about this the other way around. They'll say that there is a lot of stress put on mothers with the expectation to breastfeed. Now I always say here, I'm not about telling mums that they should breastfeed. I'm not about telling them that they have to continue breastfeeding. I am about ensuring that they get all the support humanly possible to achieve their breastfeeding goals. So if you want to breastfeed, I'm about making sure that everything that we can possibly do is is done so that you can achieve that. Because if you're at home with your baby and things are not going well and you're, you're having a lot of pain while breastfeeding and you're struggling to deal with nipple shields and then you go off to the GP, now the baby's not putting weight on and the GP's pressuring you to we are gonna have to start supplementing the baby now. And the GP obviously will only offer you formula and bottles to do that. There's no other option in a GP's mind.
0: Then Yeah, they're just putting like a band-aid solution on it, not actually trying to figure out, oh, okay, so why? Like they're not about yeah. exploring why, what's the issue that's going on. They're just like, here's gonna band-aid fix and ignore anything
1: else. It's all about symptoms management. That's all GPs yeah. are. Right? Well, a lot of the time. Not not all GPs, but a lot of the time it's symptoms management or they'll give you some reflux medication. And most of the time, the risks of that reflux medication are not discussed. And there are very real risks to giving reflux medication to infants like um, Gaviscon, et cetera, because uh, I can not remember what the other ones are called, but they're not actually made or tested for infants. So it's only now that well, the last couple of years that research has been coming out about the risks of reflux medication for infants. So Mm -hmm. when you go to the doctor and your baby has reflux and they give you a a, um, script for reflux medication without discussing the risks with you, we're so far down the path of non-informed choice here because we're not the risks of formula, we're not told the risks of of stopping breastfeeding, we're not told the risks of the formula medication. So,
0: Yeah, and how is that an actual informed decision? Because we weren't given that information And that's really doing a disservice to mothers. And you're so right, is that people think that there's like a a breastfeeding versus formula feeding thing. And it's like, no, that's you're missing the point. The point is that our society is failing us. It's failing us and giving us all the information that we deserve. But it's not just about us. It's about the impact on our children. They're a baby or a child. They don't get a say in that. They're not the ones going along to these doctor appointments. And so we have that responsibility for them as well. And you put it so well it's it's the risks of not breastfeeding too and then if you're trying to do all these other symptoms management,s as, as you put it like with the reflux med- medication what does that mean and we even have a lot of stuff coming out now about gut health and now gut health is being linked to mental health and it's it's like everyone's starting to realize but it's because all of us have gone away and are doing the work that should have been done to begin with <laughs> it's really <laughs> frustrating
1: well it is because we also we're not looking at the mother and baby as a dyad and that's so critical like I, I was doing a post-op about this the other day I haven't put it up yet but there's the the Swahili word mama toto which is mother baby like they're physically separate now but they're one you consider them as one and you treat them as one and this is why I will always always tell mums see a good IBCLC overseeing a GP if you've got thrush and you need a script, okay, you you can go off to the GP and get a script for that. But if you're seeing an IBCLC, they are specifically trained to view you and the baby as a dyad and they are going to treat you together. The number of times that mums come out of the GP or the paediatrician's office or from seeing the child health nurse and they say, oh, my baby's not putting enough weight on, I've been diagnosed with low supply, and I've been told that if I can't get baby's weight up in the next fortnight, that we're going to have to start supplementing with formula. Now that's wrong on so very many levels. Firstly, Just because the baby's not gaining weight, it doesn't mean that mum automatically has low supply. A lot of the time, the vast majority of the time, it's because the baby has low milk transfer Mm. because they're not feeding effectively because of the bloody tongue tie that nobody has picked up. And weight is only
0: one factor that they look into. There's other things like the growth charts, but also nappy output is one that people really dismiss as well. Weight is only one factor in looking in it as a whole.
1: Yeah, and then we're putting a lot of stress on the mum because we're blaming the mum, you've got low supply, your yeah. body is failing is the undertone of that. And we've already been through nine months worth of probably telling the mum that her body's not going to be able to give birth and that her baby's too big, her baby's too small, she's got too much fluid, she doesn't have enough fluid, she's got gestational diabetes. We've already been through the ringer of being told that we are not capable of of growing and birthing a baby Mm. and now we get told fairly promptly often that we are not capable of feeding our baby so the impact oh my gosh debbie
0: you just nailed it like that's such a good point i haven't i haven't heard anyone say it exactly like you just said it then and that's exactly it
1: when we like there's there's so many like little factors because you're recovering from birth so you've got all of the post-birth Trauma and, and hormones and, and everything that's going on with that, then you've also got all of the hormones around breastfeeding, because breastfeeding is an intricate mix of hormones as well. <clears throat> Excuse me, and if your baby <clears throat> <laughs> I've given it to you now <laughs> I'm pop into it this time. Around. If your baby is not feeding effectively, if they have a shallow latch, that actually impacts on the breastfeeding hormone. So you're going to have lower levels of those feel-good breastfeeding hormones, the oxytocin, and that can contribute along with the other stress and post-birth trauma and the other stuff going on to postnatal depression and postnatal anxiety. So we get, we're blaming the mother, we're not supporting the mother we are putting pressure on the mother that it's her fault. She's got low supply. You've got to get this baby to gain weight. And then the mum is in an absolute state. We're not supporting her in any way. We're not supporting her physically. We're not supporting her emotionally. We're not giving her good breastfeeding advice. And then if the mum does end up not being able to continue breastfeeding and often 98% of the time, Weaning blues does not get talked mm. about. Breastfeeding grief does not get talked about. So, And again, hormones, so- there's a huge drop that happens as well. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So we get, um, we, we will often stop breastfeeding suddenly in that situation mm-hmm. and maybe given um, tablets to dry up the milk. So we get a massive drop because what happens, like you give birth and then your breastfeeding hormones are meant to be up here and then according to sort of nature, they would gradually taper mm-hmm. off over the following like year or two. And then you get pregnant again and then you you, know, you do that cycle. But when we, when we have to wean suddenly, it just goes bang like this. And a lot of the time mums get told to wean suddenly because they've got mastitis and they get recurrent mastitis or a blocked duct or something like that. And they say, look, you have to stop breastfeeding because you've got to stop the milk coming through your breast mm-hmm. because you're going to keep getting abscesses and that kind of thing. So... The early cessation of breastfeeding is a massive contributor to postnatal depression and postnatal anxiety, both from the hormone crash. And th- there's, there's three things, hormone crash, maternal satisfaction. If we wanted to breastfeed and we couldn't breastfeed, it's heartbreaking. Um, Professor Amy Brown has done some good research on this, on the long-term um emotional and psychological impacts of not being able to breastfeed. my
0: mum is uh approaching her 70s and when my sister and i because of us breastfeeding our children wanted to talk to her about it you could still see the pain in her eyes because she was told she had low milk supply and i know what the issues were and i've never told her but it was because she was deep in that society of where dads had to give a bottle uh to bond or to help out so she was missing feeds there and also i'm i'm pretty sure i probably have a tie and i know my sister um all three of her children have had ties that need to be revised so there's also that that comes into play as well and they wouldn't have known about it what 50 30 there was not. I'm trying, no. I'm trying to do the math no. how old are we all now 30 40 years ago how old? <laughs> there was not
1: um there was not there was not much knowledge about ties back then because what happened in the eighties was it was really like from the sixties onwards <clears throat> was the, the height of the formula feeding mm-hmm. era. So we had, Oh gosh, several, this is a
0: whole other conversation we could delve into.
1: <laughs> there were several things collided at that point. One was the formula marketing. So it was like, mm-hmm. you know, Mad Men style of formula marketing was massive. It was everywhere. It was unregulated. It was like the advertising. Yep, told
0: it was alcohol. the best. Right
1: before that was before that was regulated um and also it was and and this don't don't anybody that's watching this take this wrong way but it was the height of of feminism of i i can go back to work if i want to go back to work i can you know um I, i can be just like a man and i you know and so there was a lot more of, well, the baby's going to go into care early. And so we're going to, I'm going to stop breastfeeding and put them on formula. And so there was a lot of that 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 happened in the 80s as well. And then we we had the same situation when it came to breastfeeding support in that breastfeeding was not at a, a very high rate back then. And breastfeeding support was non-existent. I remember talking to Um, Kay Whitby, who's a a lovely ABA lady um, in Brisbane and she was working as a nurse on the wards in the 80s and she said if a mum was struggling with breastfeeding they got handed a bottle of formula Mm -hmm. that was it, there was no attempt made to figure out what the breastfeeding problem was now, this comes to, and and this is you know, probably a little bit out of the scope of what we're talking about today, but the intergenerational trauma of difficulties with birth and difficulties with breastfeeding, there's an epigenetic like situation we've got going on there. Totally. Where often our mothers and our grandmothers went through horrific birth situations, were yeah. not supported in breastfeeding. And if we don't have the lived memory of breastfeeding as a child, it's actually going to be, as much as it's natural and it happens, it's going to be harder for us to to learn it almost. Mm. And similar to your mum, I remember talking to my mother-in-law after my second child was born. And so she was in her 70s at the time. She's passed away now. And she had three children. The older two were adopted. And this was in the 60s and 70s. And she, I'm so impressed with her. She tried to induce lactation for the two babies that she adopted. Like how incredible. That's amazing.
0: Like that's like that natural instinct, isn't it?
1: Yeah, it's incredible. And then her, um, she had two adopted and then she, um, she had one, she fell pregnant and she gave birth and she had that, you know, horrific birth experience. Like I'm reading in Give Birth Like a Feminist at the moment where they knocked her out and they took the baby mm-hmm. out with forceps and then yeah. she woke up in a room by herself because visiting hours were over and they'd sent her husband home and she didn't know if her baby was dead or alive and nobody came to see her. And she was just, I crazy.
0: honestly, I cannot believe women birthed in those conditions. That's absolutely insane.
1: Like it like, not-
0: pains me just to think about it and I haven't experienced it. So imagine going through that.
1: And there's so many times when it's not that much better now. Like we're not getting, I mean,
0: look at the pandemic that we're going through right now.
1: We're getting coerced into a hell of a lot of your baby will die if you don't do X, Y, Z, if you don't induce and if you don't book a cesarean and all of that sort of thing. So um, she also tried to breastfeed and that's what we were talking about that day. And her daughter was, is now 40 something and she's in her seventies and she was crying because Mm -hmm. she had tried to breastfeed and she couldn't breastfeed and it didn't work out. And she had held that trauma and that distress for all of those 40 years. Mm -hmm. So we know that there's long-term effects, there's intergenerational effects to not being able to successfully establish breastfeeding. And when it comes to tongue tie as an impact on breastfeeding, because... The tongue being tethered in the bottom of the mouth has such a big impact on oral function because the tongue's not meant to be in the bottom of our mouth. It's meant to sit up in the roof of our mouth.
0: Every time you say that, I'm always extra conscious of where my tongue is sitting. (laughs) I'm like, where is it?
1: (laughs) Um, So when we have a restricted range of movement of the tongue, It has a big impact on oral function. So a lot of breastfeeding issues are actually related to tongue type because they're caused by oral function issues. So when you've got a baby that's got a really shallow, chompy latch and they are causing you a lot of nipple pain and nipple damage when they are causing blocked ducts because of that and then you're maybe going on to get mastitis because of the blocked ducts. um, Babies that have got reflux because they're taking in a lot of air Mm -hmm. because they can't get a good seal on the breast and so they're taking in air because they don't have a proper vacuum seal that's they're meant to have a full seal on the breast between their lips and their tongue down the bottom and they're also gulping the milk down because they can't elevate so a lot of people know that if you can't stick your tongue out then you might have a tongue tie And I rant about this because extension is not the only factor. Elevation is a really critical and the most important factor in using your tongue effectively the way that we were meant to use it without having a tongue tie. And so when you can't elevate the tongue, you can't um, control the flow of milk very well because Mm. you can't, you're meant to, where's my boob, you're meant to um, take the nipple all the way to the, to the, back of the mouth the junction of the hard and the soft palate and then the tongue is meant to lift and lower so you create a seal with the lips and the tongue lowers and that creates a vacuum so breast you know this but i'm talking to everybody else (laughs) breastfeeding is not a it's not a sucking action it's not like Mm. sucking through a straw yeah because
0: you see the tongue um do like a wave
1: yeah yeah so it's the vacuum that's created by the lip seal and then you drop That the baby drops the tongue and that creates a vacuum and the milk is is drawn out of the nipple. And then the baby lifts the tongue and that gently compresses the nipple, gently being the operative word, against the uh, junction of the hard and the soft palate. And that stops the flow of milk and then the baby can swallow, breathe and start again. Mm -hmm. So when you've got a baby that's struggling with the letdown, uh, choking on the breast, pulling off the breast, sputtering, um, struggling to breathe while they're feeding, getting really, you know, frustrated, and um, and then going down the, the same track of breast refusal. All of these things, not they're not guaranteed to be caused by ties, but they're quite commonly caused by ties because ties are causing the oral dysfunction that's mm. then making it hard for the baby to feed effectively. So when you can't get a good seal. And you can't elevate your tongue properly you're not going to be able to feed effectively and often that means that so you kind of end up with two situations you end up with the mum who's got a really naturally high supply maybe she's maybe she's mm-hmm. on her third baby and she's a naturally high supply and a pretty good letdown and this baby just drinks the letdown and um, it's like drinking from a fire hose, one of the providers compares it to. They drink the let down, they stack on the weight, but they're a really refluxy baby. So they're feeding mm. all the time because they've got reflux and it's coming back up and it's hurting their throat. And they've got explosive, green, frothy poos. So you get this baby over here. And then on the other side, you get the baby that's not feeding effectively. It's first time mum, she doesn't have a good natural supply. She um, had birth things happen that interrupted, you know, the establishing of her supply. She was separated from baby for three or four hours. And this baby's got low muscle tone. And so they are just um, sitting there on the breast and she doesn't have any nipple damage. So, you know, we, we, we tend to say, oh, baby's putting on weight, oh, it couldn't be tight. Oh, you don't have nipple damage, it couldn't be tight. But this baby just sits on the breast very passively, but mum doesn't have a a good supply and she doesn't have a really strong letdown. So this baby is not putting on weight really well. And then we get a third situation where the baby's possibly putting on weight normally, maybe it's the first or second time mum, but she's got an okay supply. And then in order to control the flow of milk, the baby is chomping down really hard on the nipple. So they're crushing the nipple up against the the hard palate Mm. here, right behind their gums. And they're using that to control the flow of milk because they can lift the front of their tongue and they can chomp down with their gums. And this is the mum that ends up with really bad nipple damage and then blocked ducts and mastitis because that baby's probably not draining the breast effectively as well. So you can see there's lots of variables. And I often sound like, I used to call myself the crazy tongue tie lady. I often sound like a crazy lady because someone will post a series of seemingly unrelated symptoms to do with breastfeeding, and I'll come in and say, "Well, all of those are actually symptoms of your baby possibly having a tongue tie, so you should, mm. you know, get that checked out." Because it, and and I assume to people that are watching along, it probably seems like I say that all the time, no matter what the mum's got, Deb's going to say the baby has a tongue tie, <laughs> <laughs> because I know what the underlying like issue is that's causing the baby to do that thing. We, we talk about, um, you know, improving position and attachment. Most mums fairly instinctually know how to position a baby to breastfeed. And you can absolutely do tweaks and improvements with that. But if you've tried some of those positional improvements and some of the laid back breastfeeding and it's not improving things, then it's not you. It's not something mm. that you're doing wrong. It's an issue with the baby. So, mm. And so what's
0: my- your advice then for those that mm. <clears throat> like have that instinct that something's not quite right, no matter how many times they've asked or brought it up to people and nothing's helping, like none of the positional changes are helping, n- nothing changing their diet, um, pumping, I don't know, whatever all the various millions of things we tell mums to do. What's your advice for them when they feel like they're being dismissed? So how like how could they get to that point of actually – um, exploring the possibility of a tongue tie.
1: That, and that's actually, we forgot to, um, talk about that early on because the, you've got all of the, you know, not getting good breastfeeding advice, being told you've got a supplement, etc. but a lot of the time, and it's a really common, so I work with mums online across Australia and New Zealand, a really, really common statement that mums say to me is, I know there's something wrong. I know that this, like there's, our instincts are so strong mm. to know that it's not like it's not necessarily your supply and and when we've got a really strong gut feeling often that there is actually something wrong and that gets dismissed by medical professionals as well because we don't trust mother's intuition what would mums know you're just a first-time mum you don't have any experience in this and it just like it's so further grinds us down because we have the same situation in birth and then it just flows on again we get told mm. that We're not far enough along. We need to push now or, you know, all of that sort of thing. And then we come to breastfeeding and we get told the same thing. And a lot of the time, um, you know, mums will have, will feel that there's something medically wrong with their baby, not just tongue tie, but that they're they're sick or something chronically is wrong with them. And that gets dismissed as well. So,
0: yes, because a lot of the time, especially new mums, are just labelled as anxious. Um, Yeah. And depending on who you get, you're either going to be told to suck it up or maybe you would actually get put through to a professional that could help you in that department. Um, And I realized I forgot to comment on that earlier. You mentioned that is that there's this misconception that stopping breastfeeding magically makes your mental health better. And a lot of the times, as you were mentioning before about the hormone drop, it it can do the opposite effect and that's not talked about enough. Mm.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I've got a whole series of pieces I want to do about, um, weaning blues and breastfeeding grief and early cessation mm-hmm. of breastfeeding because pain is the biggest contributor to whether a mother will continue breastfeeding yes. or not. So when people, um, the ex-head of the Australian Dental Association dismissed tongue-tie relief because it is found to improve maternal perception of pain. Now, firstly, I have a really big problem with that phrasing, but I get that it's a... It's a um, because I can't measure how much pain someone is experiencing on a scale of one to ten. It is an individual, you know, mm. perception of pain. But if tongue tie release increases uh, decreases maternal perception of pain, conversely, that's increasing the likelihood that that mother will continue breastfeeding. So yeah, exactly. If you see it as just the pain, I feel like talking to him and asking him if he wants me to clip some crocodile clips onto his nipples for a while but
0: like why why this do we not accept is it not acceptable like if you broke your leg you know like you go and get help for it and you fix it and the doctor's probably going to be like what did you do to get that broken leg you tell them yeah probably don't do that and like actually get it fixed but when it comes to things like breastfeeding and you either have people that are told that it's um normal to have pain especially when you're first establishing and on some level that's true. When those first few days when you're learning, it can be a little bit painful, but it's, it's not meant to be that, especially that excruciating pain all the time. And it's not meant to continue for every single feed. And I mean, think about how many times we feed them, especially with feeding on demand. I know um, Stacey, who I was talking to earlier from the milk project has been doing series lately with, cause she has her third and she's been documenting their feeds during the day and night, which I love. And it's just normalizing how often they feed. And so the mothers that you're working with like imagine dealing with that amount of pain multiple times day and night that definitely starts to do something to your sanity because then you're not looking forward to it and you're wanting to avoid it and you're cringing like every moment and then from an attachment perspective um I don't know if you've seen them but there's uh studies uh or experiments I should say and you can go on YouTube and have a look of how our micro expressions or even just our facial expressions in general are really important for children. One in particular is called the still face experiment. If you want to go yeah. look at that on YouTube, it's really interesting. Um, so then you have to consider like the close proximity that we are with our child, like really each other's faces yeah. and they, they pick up on that. Um, and my sister actually talked to, when she was talking to my mom about their breastfeeding challenges, my mom told her that she was crying every single, breastfeed because she wanted to do it so much, but I think she also had some pain. And I remember my sister saying to me, like, what? That's really, like, messed up. Like, imagine me as a baby always seeing you looking at me crying. Like, what was that telling me? And I think for a long time we were um, – she would tell the story more like blaming my mom for crying. But if you're yeah. going through something, like a painful experience or if you're being dismissed, then it's not your fault, Mm. it's really not and that's what frustrates me with mothers is that we we put it on ourselves we guilt and shame ourselves and we don't need to because we get enough of that from other people doing it to us as well um yeah and it's just one of the many things of of trying to get it through that yes you need to take care of your children we know that it's so important but you also need to take care of yourself and that doesn't mean the answer is stopping doing something that you wanted to do like breastfeeding
1: yeah Yeah, I um, gave a one-minute TEDx talk a few years ago and I said, um, like, we um, early cessation of breastfeeding leads to increased postnatal depression, postnatal anxiety and feelings of failure. We have not failed. We have been failed. We are being failed every day by the general um, medical care system. And, you know... we are lucky in a way here in Australia because our system is not as bad as the UK. If you look at the UK and their breastfeeding rates and their rates of recognition of tongue tie and treatment of tongue tie, it's even lower than mm. Australia.
0: So, I mean, I even um, find that issue just when it comes to, um, what's it called? Like the paper parental leave, which you see is an issue in the US especially where they're going yeah. back sooner than someone compared it's it wet. to uh, like puppies and kittens how they're not allowed to be adopted out, but yet we're sending mothers to work separated from their human babies before that time. And so it's like, why do do we respect it with animals, yet we can't even do it with
1: our own race? Yeah. Yeah, There's a lot of interesting comparisons there. But yes, we do have a better um, situation in Australia, Mm -hmm. but um, (laughs) mainly the way to... um, get good support around issues with ties whether it's for your baby whether it's for your um older child or whether it's for yourself we didn't get to touch much on adults but um is to go outside the public system unfortunately and Mm. it's really frustrating because um depending on you know if you've got private health or who's covered under private health and who isn't um it can end up being more expensive but the thing i talk about with that is when we're talking about establishing breastfeeding and we're talking about tongue ties and oral function working on all of that stuff early is a really great investment in lifelong Mm. health because we know for us as mothers um breastfeeding you know for any length of time and then the longer we breastfeed for actually reduces risks of lots of things for us ovarian cancer diabetes i think even heart issues maybe um and for the child establishing breastfeeding and also helping to improve their oral function in infancy is going to have like quite lifelong impact i can see the difference between my my daughter whose ties were released at 12 months old and my son whose ties were released at 11 days old i knew Interesting. It more by the time i was with him i can see the difference in their oral function so even though like I know what I need to do for them now because they're at the right age that we can now do sort of the next stage of improving their oral function. Um, the investment that you make at that point, it's not like, well, I'm gonna have to spend $1,000 on this and it's, it's just for breastfeeding. I mean, for a lot of us, breastfeeding is important enough that that's you know, something that we want to invest in, just like we want to invest in good birth support and good postpartum support and that kind of thing but also consider it to be a much longer-term investment because Mm. the lifelong impacts of... I'll I'll say the lifelong impacts of ties are huge. And we don't have... At the moment, we're getting a a bigger body of research, but at the moment, we don't have research that directly links um, a tongue tie to like a speech issue in, mm. in adulthood. But we do have all of the linking bits of research. So um, Dr. Audrey Yoon has researched um, short frenulum, which is another description for tongue tie, as an indicator for sleep disordered breathing and sleep apnea. And then we've got um, the knowledge that ties impact on the, the, the tongue being held low in the mouth. And therefore we end up with the high narrow palate and that impacts on the oral development and we get told, oh, you don't have enough space in your mouth for all of your teeth. And I remember when my, my dentist said that to me when I was 12 or 13, he said, you'll have to go and have braces and we'll have to extract a couple of teeth because you don't have enough space for all your teeth. I remember thinking like how, How (laughs) Yeah, like (laughs) why (laughs) I didn't get given a few extra teeth when I was like in utero, I've got the (laughs) same number of teeth as the rest of the humans in the world. Like, why don't I have enough space for my teeth and it yeah. was because I've got the really narrow palette so what happens when you 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 have a high and narrow palette instead of a low and wide palette is you end up with the sort of horsey shape and you end up with this quite you you know quite or v-shape rather I would say um And that's why we end up with not enough space for our teeth and our teeth end up crowded. And so when we're looking at intervening in infancy and in childhood, it can make a huge difference for um, all of their old development, their airways, all of that sort of thing. And then even for ourselves as adults, because often we discover that we have ties through finding out that our children have ties. Um, It's a bit of a gateway, you know, sort of go down that (laughs) path. Um, And I've had my tongue tie released as an adult and the improvements that you can gain in oral function, in um, airways, in speech, in eating, um, which then obviously airways has a huge impact on your sleep as well. So sleep disordered breathing, sleep apnea, um, all of those things when you look at them again you wouldn't say well they're directly related to mental health but when we look at ourselves as a big picture and yep. recognize that you know if if we can't speak clearly and we were the shy kid at school because yes. we've never had clear speech or like gonna...
0: you at 12 13 thinking something's wrong with you because you your teeth weren't fitting in your mouth yeah
1: well i had i had really crowded teeth and i remember from, you know, probably the age of 10 through until I had braces when I was 20, um, I would smile with my mouth closed. So I might, you know, in pictures I was always like, this. Yes. And the ways in which you modify your behaviour mm-hmm. in order to compensate for things like that. So you feel like you've got bad teeth, um, uh, Dr. Dan Hansen, who's a brilliant dentist who works with, um, with kids a lot in this area and also with infants, um, you know, he talks about one of his inspirations in doing this work is because um, he was bullied at school for his mm. teeth. And lots of kids will experience, unfortunately, yeah. negative comments and mm. that sort of thing, especially when you get into the teenage years. And then if you spit a lot when you talk, which is another issue mm. of oral dysfunction and ties, and you have unclear speech, then you tend to end up being the person that talks less, you're a quiet speaker, you don't speak up, you don't want to go and, you know, give talks, and you don't want to put your hand up for this leadership role. Mm -hmm. And so while it's not, um, again, a fully direct link, you can see how over the course of your lifetime, Mm -hmm. compensating for these kinds of issues Mm -hmm. can have, like that flow-on effect for... But
0: when it comes to mental health anyway, there is no perfect link. Like, we don't talk about getting depression because of this one thing that happened in your life. Sometimes we do, and that's where, like, PTSD could come through. But even then, it's always a combination of things, and you have to look at each person as a whole and in a holistic way. You have to look at um, mental health. Like, that's why we're talking about this, because it does link doesn't mean it's an exact correlation or whatever but it all plays a part because a tongue tie like you said it affects us not only as infants but as adults it affects your speech it affects um you know your teeth it affects all these other things and we're probably still going to find out a lot more other ways that it is affecting us and so if you want to keep on top of that you need to be following debbie because she's the one that brings all the information to us she's the one that actually cares enough to go to all these like seminars and pay for the extra training and things like that, that the rest of us get to enjoy, because I don't think I had any idea about it until I started seeing you talk about it.
1: Yeah. I I see myself as the link between the medical professionals and the parents. So I go Mm -hmm. to the seminars, I go to the conferences, some of them I speak at as a parent advocate. And so I, I like take in all this sort of vast amounts of, of, um, content and then try and disseminate that in a way that's um fairly easily understood by people who haven't been immersed in it for as long as i have Mm. so um anyone watching um if you want to know about like sort of what what step to take next or what you know you're at a point with your child or your baby or your wherever whatever stage you are at Um, please either um, comment here and let me know ask questions I can come back and answer questions later as well Um, or always feel free to drop me a DM either on my business page or my personal page and I'm happy to point you in the direction of um, whoever is the right next person to see or you know whatever whatever path and if you do have um, something that I was just talking to jamie about the other day um, is if you have had a difficult breastfeeding experience in the past and you're approaching you know pregnancy or you are pregnant um, i offer breastfeeding um like debrief sessions where we can go over your previous breastfeeding Mm. experiences and then make a breastfeeding plan and then that also includes um seven days of messenger support after your baby is born so that i can help you to overcome all of those early breastfeeding difficulties and really, that's
0: amazing. Yeah, that's, a, that's really needed. Isn't it for those that have gone through trouble the first time. And I know that they're more anxious the following time. That's exactly the kind of things that we need, isn't it? Um, thank you so much Debbie, not... for coming on and, and talking to us today. And You're like, like Debbie said, if you have any questions, comment below and we'll make sure to come back and check it out. Um, but yeah, you definitely need to go and follow her um, for all the information that we need that's continuing to come through about this.
1: Yes, there's so much research coming out which is really awesome to see.